What's my policy, Demer? Do for yourself or die a slave. That's it. Say it one more time. Do for yourself or die a slave. And you are tuning in to Why Not Sports with the homie D. Murph. So why not? Why not? Why not sports? It impacts your everyday life. Why not sports? It's more than on and off the courts. Why not sports? Hey. Why not sports? Yeah. Why not sports? It impacts your everyday life. Why not sports? It's more than on and off the court. Why not sports? Hey. Why not sports? D Murph. D Murph. You a fool for this one. <laughs> yeah. Alright, bro. You tell me, y'all. Broke the 500. When I took this time to gather myself, I had to bring some. People that has inspired me, encouraged me in particular. This gentleman right here, a legendary sports journalist, an author, and I want to talk about that too. I'll say the title The Game is Not a Game. The Power, Protests, and Politics of American Sports. Here on Why Not Sports. Lover of hip hop, lover of sneakers. When you talk about Someone that oh come on all day long. See if I got the right now world it's on video so you don't know the gestures but we're positively impacting ESPN Sports Center Slam Magazine XXL Magazine award winning. I can say another minute, two minutes, five minutes of just accolades and what he's brought to the table from the Midwest, family man. Still ruffling, you know, not even say ruffling feathers, but just knocking down doors, trailblazing for people like myself, creating my own empire. Like he said, whether it's big or small, I'm still doing my thing. But world, help me welcome. I call him Mr. Scoop, but Robert Scoop Jackson on the other end of Why Not Sports. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you for coming in. Appreciate you, Murph. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Man, y'all. Happy Labor Day. Man, happy Labor Day. Scoop said it's an honor, y'all. Did I just say Scoop with the heavy hitters? Allen Iverson connected with him back. We got to talk about that. When you was about, now what I read, you was about to resign if they didn't publish that episode with him being on the cover? Yeah, man, no, I was that, that's, that's that's a story that's taking on a life of its own, man. It was it was really not as, it's not as big as it was being made. I threw the thread out there that, you know, if, you know, uh, Dennis Pays uh, publisher of Slam Magazine that it, he didn't put Allen on the cover at the time that you know I'd leave you know um and I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't gonna leave you know gotcha but you know I just threw it out there because I was I had a strong belief in who Allen Iverson was at the time and what I had seen and Dennis's thing was you know my thing was from a journalistic perspective his was from a publishing perspective Mm -hmm. and as journalists we always chase and try to find what we feel are the best stories as a publisher, his job is to sell those stories. Um, and in his mind, at the time, at Slam, we had never had a college basketball player on the cover. Right. And this was after Allen's freshman year at Georgetown. And if you know Allen's history at Georgetown, uh, you know, he was the defensive player of the year in the Big East. It wasn't like he was the player of the year or the right. offense, but he was just a freshman, averaged around 15 points. He didn't make a big splash. So 
you know, outside of the Big East, you know, Allen Iverson wasn't like, you know, he wasn't resonating like that. You know, but I saw him play in the summer league, you know, in Georgetown in the Kennel League. I saw him go off and I'm like, oh, this dude is this this is this is not the same player that we seen in Georgetown. This is this dude is different. You know, so I was all about the story and you know, that's where we came into an impasse. And you know, I threw the threat out there, like, man, if, if you don't put him on a magazine, I'm out. And he, we take stances and he's like, you know what? Whatever. He's like, I know your ass ain't leaving. But <laughs> I need, you know, I need to prove your point. And, and his point, his point was simple. His point was, I know publishing, you know writing. You know, he almost did LeVar Ball, man. Stay in your lane. You know, stay in yeah. your lane. Yeah. But he did it anyway. Um, and I don't know if, you know, it wasn't my threat or anything that convinced him. I don't think it was the story of me telling him, of, you know, what I think. I thought Allen Iverson was the next, you know, whatever next is. But I, I think Tony Gervino, the editor-in-chief at the time, maybe had some inroads on pushing the story, you know, and, and, and reminding Dennis that our responsibility at SLAM was to be different, was to do things first, was to do things that no other sports magazine, Sports Illustrated, Sport News, whatever else was out there, mm-hmm. were doing counterculture, you know, and this is before AI, you know, became AI. Right. But... You know, Black Guard at Georgetown University, you know, had a skill set, you know, that was special, unique. His backstory was special and unique. This is a story that's he, he's the reason we started, you know, Dennis, you started this magazine. I think Tony probably reminded him of that. Yes. You know, we're supposed to take risks. Yes, you know, this magazine is here to make money, but that's not what it's all about. You know, so I think Tony leaned on him a little bit as well. So, you know, he did what a good publisher is supposed to do. I think he used my example to make an example, but I think he also listened to the editor-in-chief and stayed true as a reminder for what we're trying to build with this magazine. And, he, you know, he ended up putting um, Allen on the cover. He did an East Coast split with Allen Iverson on one cover and did Ed O'Bannon on the other cover and kind of packaged it around, you know, a East college Coast, basketball preview. You know, they played, they yep. played it smart. Yep. You know, but it was the, it, it was the first time that we had ever put any college basketball players on the cover of the magazine, first of all. It was the first time we had ever really concentrated on college as as a whole and started doing the preview thing, which is something I don't think he wanted to do, or he saw himself doing, but the situation lent itself. And thirdly, it ended up being the, um, well, there's, yeah, thirdly's not finally, but thirdly, it ended up being the worst selling magazine Slam had had up to that point. Like, it did not move at all. The numbers were horribly low. And that was the point he brought back to me. But the fourth thing and the final thing was that that was the first time he, it was kind of like the first time Alan Iverson had ever been on the cover of a magazine. He was on the cover of Sporting News before, but that was more of a news story about, mm-hmm. you know, his past and what had happened when he was in high school and being locked up and all of a sudden. This was the first true cover story that was about him and not his activity, not this and that. This was just a story about a young human being and about his ability to play basketball you know i think we barely even mentioned the jail situation the bowling alley situation his mom you know none of it i don't think we even we touched on his ability as a ball player and what we saw in that mm-hmm. so in many instances you know alan looks at that as you know we were the first people to recognize him as him and put him on the cover of the magazine 
So he developed a trust and loyalty with us. So while that particular issue at the time was, I think the worst selling issue in the history of Slam up to that point, the relationship we developed with Alan Iverson was something that no other magazine was able to have as he became Alan Iverson into the future. So where Dennis probably lost money on that issue, he made millions moving forward because of that issue. You know, so, you know, he, you know, his point to me was like, look, I told you this wasn't a good idea. And my response to him was, like, hey, man, sometimes you got to lose a million to make two million. Come on. So sometimes you got to trust, you know, it's not about the short money. It's about the long money. You know, you got to play the long game sometimes, you know, so it was one of those learning experiences we just went through. But the, the core of the story always comes out about I was going to lead slam, you know, and. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, it's, it, man, it's like playing cards, man. You know, you got a trump card. Sometimes you got to play it. And yeah. Yeah, right. Sometimes you got to play it, you know, and, and even though, you know, you may still lose that hand, yeah. you play it just to let folks know that I ain't, I ain't always about the bullshit. Right. You know, I'll let you know where I stand. I'll let you know what I might do as we continue to play this game. So I don't think I was, you know, about to lead slamming anything, but you know, I, 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 I verbally threw it out there and I okay. think you know and, and to be honest with you I think Dennis knew I you know I could have gone other places and written and this that, and the other but I you know I think he knew what we were building there and and I think he knew in his heart uh he, he ain't going nowhere and it wasn't like I was demanding any money or anything like that you know what I'm saying I'm just like look man I believe in this I, if you don't do this I'm gone yeah you know his, it probably his mind like all right so where else are you gonna go and try to get this story done? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. You gonna come back here? You try to go to these other magazines and sell them on the Allen Iverson cover story? Good luck. Yeah. You know, I think Dennis knew my wife too, and she's gotcha. like, "Your black ass not about to leave this on the cover." So you talk, you talking what you talking? You know. So yeah. I, yeah. You know, it, it's 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 a funny story. Um, it's it's a true story, but it's 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 become mythical now because the root of it stays in the fact that there's a belief that what I said was more of a threat as opposed to two people having a a, a, a disagreement in a right. conversation right. about a story, really, you know? And that's why I want to ask, because like you said, man, you know, D, they call me Scoop D now in this episode, you know what I mean? But anyway, <laughs> um, you read things on the internet and just read things and kind of from years on, like I said, as I follow you and you just want to just make sure hear from the source. So I just want to hear yeah. from the source, make sure. Well, it's, legit. It's, 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 it's really legit. I mean, I, I did say that. <laughs> Literally, I did say that, you know, right. but I don't I don't think in all honesty, I don't think that was going to happen. Gotcha. I, I really don't think that's happening. I'm 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 not the type of person that I don't I don't feel I have strong strong opinions but i do stand in what i believe is truth mm -hmm. you know and i try to also lean towards what i feel is appropriate and right and i will stand on that so i say that to say that i wasn't it wasn't my opinion that alan iverson had to be on the cover but i felt for what we were doing in slam magazine it was the right thing to do at the right time and he was the right person. And this was a situation that I felt right standing in. That's all it was. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you have to be verbal about those things. Yes, I don't know what type of actions I would have put on behind that. 
You know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I don't know if this is like, I don't know if this is going to be like, nah, man, I'm not doing this. If I would have left. Right. I don't, because at the end of the day, I fought for him to be the cover story. There was no argument about story being done on him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a resistance like, no, we're not doing a story on Allen Iverson. It was the cover. So I that would be, you would have probably looked at me as a fool and been like, damn, Scoop, you left, you know, because Allen Iverson wasn't on the cover. It wasn't the fact that they denied you doing a story on him. It was just mm-hmm. a cover story. Mm-hmm. As long as the feature story is in there, it's, it's, you know, it's still there. Right. Every story, you know, magazines aren't built or lost on the strength of the cover story. Magazines are built or lost on the cover of the stories that are inside. And a lot of times there are feature stories that are much more stronger than anything the cover story is about. And I've known that and you know that, you know, and the publisher knows that. So I don't, you knowing that, I don't, I don't, I don't think I would have left because that would have been foolish. And, you know, I'm not the smartest brother in the world, but I tried to move and not do dumb things yeah you know yeah you, you know there's different between be doing dumb things and doing things that aren't smart <laughs> Come we on. all do things that aren't smart yes sir but we try to stay away from doing dumb things and if i really stay true to my word of leaving slam magazine but not for them not putting alan iverson on the cover but still being able to do the story that would have been a dumb thing yeah that's good yeah. man Y'all heard y'all heard it from the man himself, the source. Okay, so all that oh Scoop was about to leave if well he said it, yeah, but kinda like, hey man, we don't knew this I'm leaving, kind of thing. So right. that's dope. And to me, as a you know, only do things if you really like that. When you make moves like that, and I had a clear understanding of my position as land, which is which is a rare situation that most black people in that business had. You know, I even had Michael Wilbon tell me back then that I was the most powerful black man in sports. And I was like, how do you figure that? You know, looking at the, you know, looking at the Phil Taylors of Sports Illustrated, looking at the William C. Rotens at the New York Times, you know, yeah. looking at Roy Johnson and where he was doing this thing, looking at Wilbon at um, you know, at the Washington Post, you know, yeah. looking at all these brothers, you know, you know, doing their thing, you know, looking at Stephen A, looking at Jason Whitlock, looking at all the, you know, the the power that they have, but he made a point to me. He said, you're the only black person in this country that has the power to decide what goes on the cover of a magazine in sports. And I'm like, that's, you know, I never looked at it that way. You know, you can always, you know, balance and shift power or positions, you know, any way you want to, to make sense in different contexts. And Michael put my situation in slam, even though it was much smaller magazine, and much less, you know, powerful. But we did have influence, mm-hmm. and we did resonate with a with a unique crowd. Uh, Michael putting my position in in that type of perspective was something that I heard, especially coming from him at the time, was something that I connected with mm-hmm. and understood. So I say that to say I understood what my position was at Slam Magazine, and to leave that situation in that position without having someone doing something disrespectful to me yes sir would once again would be dumb yeah 
you know, because it's, for everything we've been through as black people in this country, little things like that shouldn't even come close to ruffling our feathers. Yeah. We should be unbothered by things like that because there have been so many things that have been done worse to us that we've moved through, past, and beyond. And if, 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 if my character and my spine was that weak that I couldn't, you know, take the fact that a magazine that I did not own, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, was, 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 was not running the way I felt that it should for a particular issue. Yes, sir. Come on, man. I, 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 I'd have to be, I, I would be dumb. And, you know, we try not to be dumb and it wouldn't be beneficial to us. It wouldn't be beneficial to me, but it definitely wouldn't be beneficial to us. And, and, and D, you know this more than as well as I do, because when you see ourselves as more than minority in the spaces we sometimes find ourselves in, yeah, yeah. we represent so many more besides the ground that we stand on. So had I really held true to my quote unquote threat of leaving because, you know, they didn't want to put Allen Iverson on the cover, what chances was that going to open up for anybody else like me to come in through those doors and have some type of impact? How was I going to help black men and women in journalism by taking that stand without being disrespected in some way? By not being strong mentally or emotionally or psychologically come on. strong enough to work through that situation and keep it moving and eventually getting Allen Iverson on the cover down the line and winning that long game. Come on. How does that benefit all of us if I do something like that? If I make a knee-jerk decision like that? So I, I going into those situations, even though I did say it, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I would have moved on it because it's not that serious, man. Right. I didn't face any form of disrespect. It was a disagreement on something, but it wasn't disrespectful. And as a black man in this business, knowing that there's so few of us, man, I got to be stronger than that. And Mr. Scoop again, Mr. Scoop. The journalism, the le the legendary. Now you see why I said tell you thank you. Cause a lot of things that you represent, I've watched and I'm starting to do it. Or oh, I am, like you said, I am doing it. Mm -hmm. And it is just one of those things. Like you said, it's the long game. If that person tells me no, or it's a disagreement, whether it's a guess or what they want of or expect of me, and if it don't line up, I'm not like you said, I'm not gonna just go crazy and just ah oh, just make a big scene. I'm gonna just right. respectfully or just to a point cordially say you know what I'm leaving like you said well, I'm just not even going to work with this you know client or customer or in this case right exactly or, uh, guest and then keep it moving yeah we got to be stronger than that and, and, and to be honest with you even at that it can't be just one thing yeah. once again if it's not disrespectful it can't be one thing that tips the scales on you leaving like that unless you're going to leave for some other reason yes sir if there, if there were other situations that were better then make that that make that be the reason don't use something like that an excuse to move on and move forward you know we can't we can't be that weak and i never saw myself as being that weak so i mean the story's nice it's sexy it's fun <laughs> but you know it to get to the real truth of it it did happen but i don't know if it would have happened had the situation played out differently yes sir so for that one listener out there though that like he said man y'all again when you just look at i don't know if i don't have enough time this episode to really examine and really indulge on the impact that scoop has in sports media um 
for the culture related to sports. But it's not that many of us as black men, strong black men. So if you are up and coming or freelancer, if you get told that no, oh man. Well, like you said, look how many of us, if things don't go our way, or we get told something we don't agree with or like, look, we know I'm going to quit or I'm, you know, I'm going to find something else to do. But you said it's a long game. I've been doing this for over five years. And I got Scoob Jackson, who was on my radar from day one, 2016. I wasn't ready or confident enough to show you, yo, this is what I've been doing. Please give me an opportunity. Now, I'm more likely picking your brain and just hearing your story before even interviewing or even recording. This is something I'm like, yo, when I get back in the lab after this, okay, this is what Scoop said about this. Just how school worked this situation. Anyway, so I just want to kind of just. Yeah, no, it's funny you said it because that's a lesson that we learned at Slam Magazine by Julie Serving. Dr. J did the same thing with us. We had been chasing Dr. J since we started the magazine because he was our big get. Yes, sir. You know, he was the one that represented, you know, outside of the younger culture. But, you know, us being older, Doc, Doc was our Michael Jordan. Yeah. He was that guy. And we knew that his story in our magazine would validate us. And we chased him for years, but he made us wait. And he told us that. He was like, there's a lot of other individuals that I felt you all should get to before you get to me. Because mm. this thing is like, I'm easy. Everybody tries to get to me because of what they feel I represent. But you bypass a lot of other great and more important basketball players trying to get to me. You know, the Earl Monroe's, the George Gervins, you know, the Elgin Baylor's, the Connie Hawkins. You know, he went down the line and he said, I like what you all were doing from the very beginning. But I wanted to see if you all went that route and got those people, if you all were serious about what it is you all were doing. And to your point, we did. We waited. We went and got all of those people. We went and talked to Dave Bean. We went and talked to Spencer Haywood. You know, we we got the 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 core of what basketball culture was all about before julius irving even said yes to us Mm -hmm. but it made sense to us once he said yes you know we were a much better magazine we were more prepared for it Mm -hmm. you know um he had watched us from afar and saw how we had grown and saw how serious we were you know and, and 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 at the time it made sense and it was so much better at the time that we got him and the story we were able to do on him as opposed to doing him early you know, we were much more confident. Much, we had so much more self-esteem. We, we, we treated the story so much better. You know, we packed it. Was, it, it, just, it just made so much more sense to do it that way. And it's the same thing you're saying. That there's something that comes with growth. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we tend to sometimes be in such a rush to get things done and do it at such a high level and get to that peak so fast without, like, forcing ourselves to go through the process that we are at our best when we do get to that peak when we do get to that point of the mountain and it's 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 part of preparation and to me preparation is what breeds sustainability Mm -hmm. and if you're prepared to do stuff and prepared to handle what comes with the possible challenges yes sir often come with running something running a podcast running a magazine you know if, if you get to that certain pinnacle, if you get to that certain point, if you get to that mountain spot and you haven't prepared and gone through any type of preparation to get there, you just jump there, you're not going to be prepared to hold it down. Absolutely. To get to that next phase of the mountain or handle everything that comes down on the downfall on the other side of that mountain. So, yeah, the same thing you're talking about 
and you know the same context you're putting me in we went through that exact same thing with julius Irving, and 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 that's part of the reason i believe like a slam magazine has been around for 20 plus years <laughs> it's because of going through that process of what right. julius Irving made us understand hey you know sometimes you have to go through that to get to certain places that you've been trying to get to for five six you know ten years you know yes sir I want to backtrack to, I got some listeners, man, that, that newer listeners that might not be familiar. Okay. Where did your love for writing come from? Uh, well, my love for writing came from reading other writers. Mm-hmm. And that started really when I was probably in high school. Uh, my father was a writer. He was a journalist. Uh, one of the first black journalists in the country. Nice. The first in the city of Chicago to work, the first black newspaper reporter in Chicago. And here's in Chicago. Um, and my mother was an educator and she was a great writer. But, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that they were the first ones. You know, I, I read my father's writing, but it was really individuals like Alex Haley. Yes. Um, you know, in, in, you know, writing not only Roots, but being the author of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And then, you know, as a kid, I was reading his interviews in, in Playboy magazine, which were legendary. Still, to me, that's one of the greatest books ever formed of his, the, the compilation of his Playboy magazine interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing. It's, it's, it's just amazing. His interview style, you know, one of the greatest injustices done in journalism, as far as I was concerned, that, you know, they never had Alex Haley as a part of 60 Minutes. You know, they wound up getting Ed Bradley later on, but Alex Haley and his ability to interview, you know, he and he and Brian Gumble were probably two of the greatest, you know, interviewers I'd experienced as, you know, a kid coming up. And Alex was in print and Brian was on television. Brian was on television. You know, they, the comfortability and the preparedness they came to with their interviews were amazing. And, and, I don't care what color you were, what gender you were. They were the best in the business as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. So I say all that to say my love for writing came from, you know, recognizing the genius of Alex Haley. And then in college, really recognizing the genius of Nelson George. Because I really started reading Nelson George in Billboard magazine when I was in college. Okay. And uh, he was the first person I read that was documenting black music the way he was doing it, but specifically hip hop. Uh, so... My love for writing came from really early on reading those two with regularity in two different, uh, you know, literary forms. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I've, I've always kind of wanted to have my own magazine because I read a lot of magazines. I wasn't a newspaper guy, really. Gotcha. As a kid. But I love magazines because magazines were specialized. So going back to even like Write On Magazine, but Sports Illustrated Magazine, Ebony Jet, Ebony Jr., mm-hmm. You know, to, to, to as we moved on to, like I said, to Billboard magazine, to Rolling Stone magazines, you know, to all type of music magazines. You know, I was I was a magazine junkie, you know, especially sports magazines, Streets and Smith. All in my room was like covered with magazine <laughs> pictures of, you know, of all the basketball players, all the hoopers, you know, all that stuff. So I developed a love for writing by reading all of these magazines. And me and my boy, Brad Samuels, who was you know, my best friend in high school, we always said we were going to have our own magazine. Gotcha. We are going to have our own magazine. You know, I was, I was going to do, you know, we were both artists at the time, but I was like, I'm going to do the writing, you're going to do the artwork, you know, so that was our thing in high school. 
but really it was I, the love came from right reading other writers that's what basically what it boils down to and once i got out of college graduated undergrad i um wanted to go to grad school man and um in entering grad school you had to take the gre the exam and I applied to two graduate schools. I applied to Howard University and I applied to Northwestern University here in, in, in you know, Evanston, right outside That's Chicago. Mm-hmm. But my goal was to go to Howard because I wanted to go to Howard undergrad, but my mom went to Howard undergrad and she was like, you ain't going there. That's it. So um, I'm like, okay, that was out. Uh, <laughs> but this time, the second time around, I was paying for my own tuition. So I had a choice of where I wanted to go. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, I didn't get a chance to go to Howard undergrad. I went to, you know, Xavier in New Orleans, Louisiana, but this is my second time around. I'm paying for it. I make the choice. So I applied to Howard and applied to Northwestern. And both schools had you write a letter of interest to get into the schools. Mm. And my letter of interest to Howard University, um, according to them, was so moving that they waived me having to take the GRE to get into their graduate program. So I'm like, okay, that's cool. So from there, and once I got into Howard's graduate program, you had to write a master's thesis. And that's when I decided to, the focus of my thesis was gonna be on hip hop. You know, and not too many, there was only one other person in the country who had done that at, at, at the graduate level who had really done an academic study on hip hop, the culture or the music of, you know, surrounding hip hop or the culture itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I took that on. So between that writing that letter to Howard University, getting to that program where it was really focused on, you know, a, a lot of it was focused on writing, especially mm-hmm. when you're trying to write a master's thesis. Um, you know, the, the work and the writing that is entailed in doing that large Good of a matter. project. <laughs> right you know what I'm saying um, and while doing that at the time I started writing columns I started writing I wrote a column for Howard University's uh, student newspaper the Hilltop and it kind of coincided with what I was doing for my master's thesis it was about public enemy and flavor flay so and I was studying hip-hop as an art form so the column I wrote was about an incident that happened with flavor flay on the Arsenio Hall show. Come on. I voted for them. And they tracked me down after I submitted it and asked me, could I do it every week for the Hilltop? I said, of course. So I started writing columns for the Hilltop while I was writing my thesis for Howard. So what wound up happening, man, is the stuff I was writing for the Hilltop started getting picked up by other newspapers. Wow. Like, the Washington Post re-ran one of the stories. The Christian Science Monitor re-ran one of the stories. USA Today ran, <laughs> ran one of the you know. And wow. I started getting checks for the things I was writing in the Hilltop. And that's when the dots connected about me leaning towards writing. Because at the time, I was working at BET. I was doing, I was doing associate production work as my um, graduate practicum at BET. Mm-hmm. Leaning into being a television producer. Um, but that was part of the curriculum in the program I was in at Howard. Okay. I was getting checks 
for the writing. And as a young black man paying his own education in graduate school, I'm gonna lean towards where it seems like this money's going. But what I did was I started connecting the dots. I'm like, wait a minute, maybe this, maybe writing is where I need to shift my attention because for some reason, what I'm writing seems to be moving people. Mm-hmm. That's good. It moved them. It, my initial writing to get into this program moved them enough so they waived me even taking the entry exam to get in here. You know, my writing, as far as my thesis is concerned, is something that nobody else in the country is doing. And it seems to be on the course to, you know, moving a unit and looking at this entire culture that we're immersed in as young people in hip hop in a direction that nobody's taken it before. Like looking at looking at our creativity in an academic form. You know, nobody's actually doing this. I'm writing like columns on current events and black culture that must be moving somebody because I'm getting paid for that. Man. So me like connecting all those dots and that's the long answer to your question of when did I fall in love with writing? Come on. I fell in love with it once I realized this may be where I'm supposed to be. And in order for me, and I'm the type of person, okay, if this is the direction I'm going, in order for me to be great at this and whatever I'm trying to do, I'm trying to be great at it. Mm-hmm. Then in order to be great at something, you have to love it. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, okay, well, let me, let me, it's time for me to really fall in love with this craft. It really is. Because if, if I'm looking at everybody else that I hold on these pedestals, these these people that in whatever it is that I do in my life, I'm trying to be like them in whatever field. Mm-hmm. If you know, knowing that I'll never reach that, but if I'm if I'm trying to be the Stevie Wonder or something, the hell, you know, I know how Stevie Wonder loves music, and that's why he's so great at it. Mm-hmm. If I'm trying to be Dr. King in something, I know how Dr. King loved like wanting to force change in society. I know how Dr. King loved giving speeches. You know, and how powerful his words can be, then I gotta have that same love. Does it make you know if I'm trying to be as good as Denzel or Meryl Streep in acting, you know, then I have to have that love. If I'm trying to be as great as Spike Lee, I know how much he loves film. I have to immerse myself in this, but I have to have a love for this. So all of these individuals, all of them, if I'm trying to be as dope as Rakim on the mic. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I have to have a love for this because because love is what's going to take you from being marginal to being influential, to having impact, not even finding the level of success, of finding some level of greatness. You know, and it's not about popularity. It's not about clout. It's not about people recognizing you. It's about having an impact in that craft. And my belief is always if you're going to have some type of impact in a craft and whatever it is you decide to do, you have to love it. And it has to be beyond just money and fame and notoriety and all that. It has to be beyond that. And that's when I fell in love with writing at that point when I knew that that was the lane that I felt I was supposed to be in because everything was lining up that way. Everything. And I'm like, okay, if this is the, if this is what my future is going to be like, then let me... You know, let me, let me put that lifeguard jacket on and let me take that deep dive. <laughs> Seriously, let me put the scuba gear on, man. I'm going yeah. down. 
Yeah. I'm going down. I'm gonna do whatever I can to make this happen. But in order for you to make for me to make it happen the way I know it's supposed to happen, in order for it to happen in a way that I think is gonna make this dive relevant, you know, make that make that space between my born day and my death death day that's on my tombstone, make that space that hyphen worth it. Then I gotta love it. And that's when I really fell in love with writing. Uh, because what I did do is all of the writers that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and I included a few more writers that I did like at the time, I went back and reread everybody's work. Mm. But I read it with a different set of eyes. I didn't read it for the enjoyment standpoint. You, I read it for, okay, how can I be on their level? What are they doing in their writing that's moving me. Why do I still why do I keep going back to these certain writers? What what are these writers doing that resonate with me? You know, so I went back and read Alex Haley all over again, but looking at it with a different set of eyes, as they say in the wire, soft eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, I went, on, I went back and read Nelson George's stuff and I started reading his books. When we started releasing books, I started reading his books. I was reading them differently now. It just wasn't for enjoyment. You know, it's like a basketball player. It's like the players nowadays. You know, as kids, they watched Kobe because Kobe was Kobe, just doing yep. things they love. But when the game got serious to them, they started looking at Kobe differently. They started picking up on everything he did and finding out like, how can I incorporate this into what it is I'm trying to do. It's the exact same thing. So when I started, and I started reading Gary Smith in Sports Illustrated, and that's when it really took a shift for me because mm. Gary Smith is like, you know, the Michael Jordan of sports journalism, as far as I'm concerned, it, you know, his, his writing is ridiculous. You know, I started reading Ralph Wiley different, you know, there, there was a lot of writers I started reading differently, but reading for a purpose of, okay, well, how can I get to their level? How can I be as great as them? How can I take certain pieces of what they do and use them, you know, to my advantage without actually copying what it is that they do? How can I grow from them? You know, and they always say that thing, we're standing on the you know, shoulders of giants. All right, you know, you have to do more than just stand on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. They're putting work for you to take with you so that not only you grow, but the entire craft grows. The art form has to grow. We don't stand on the shoulders of giants just for us to grow. They do this work for the craft. They do this for the art form because the art form is bigger than all of us. So when we're standing on these giant shoulders, it's not just for us. It's for, all right, we as individuals, who have to strive and struggle in a different way than other individuals do because of the color of our skin. Mm. You know, because all the fights and the doors we have that are not open to us that we have to either break down or go around or unlock or have it. Yeah, now we have to find a way to advance the culture, advance the craft, advance the art form and have our name on it. But the advancement of the art form comes first before our name. So I had to look at that and look at all these other writers and find a way to incorporate all of that into what it was that I was doing. And that's the long answer to when I fell in love. And been in love ever since. So there it is. Beautiful. Pay homage, world. Y'all heard me when I'm, look at me now. To your point, Scoop. Yeah. I've watched you back when I was playing high school ball. I didn't know which direction I was going to take. Am I going right. to play professionally? <sighs> Am I going to have a nine to five or am I going to put myself in a position to create my own lane to say, you know what? 
I've tried the corporate world nine to five deal. I'm not hooping no more. I went back to that 96, you know, that year yeah. in high school, them years in high school. I was like, Scoop Jackson comes to mind. I don't know where I'm going to start, but I'm going to talk about sports. I'm going to start, you know, incorporating things I learned in the corporate world, being a family man and my love yeah. for sports. And here we are now. So thank you yeah. again. Just you, your long story is my story as well, and I don't have right. And that's, no and that's the way it's supposed that. to be, and that, that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Because my story is, you know, probably like Nelson George's story. My story is Spike Lee's story. You know, it's just the exact same thing. We're just doing it in different genres, but the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the work is put up. The work is put out there for that reason. I believe. Absolutely. And if you wasn't consistent, I don't know if I can be here today, even talking with you, because you have projects lined up which we would talk on. But it's yeah. something that I want to bring up mm-hmm. about growing. And I didn't even say this in the introduction. Voiceover work. So voiceover work. You've been in some movies, you documentaries. But for me, the 96 draft, I heard yeah. the voice. I'm like, that's my man Scoop. Again, <laughs> behind the scenes, man. I'm... Let's talk about that 96 draft, man. Please. Okay. What, what... Well, it, yeah, that, once again, it, for us, I can't, I I've got to say that, you know, a lot of that credit for recognizing what that class is going to be goes to Tony Gervino because at the time we were at Slam, he was the one that suggested we put this class on a gatefold on the cover of a magazine. Um, you know, we thought it was dope. Of course, you know, I was I was all on Allen Iverson. Yes, sir. You know, and, they, you know, and Stephon Marbury was a big part. Of how we were able to build Slam Magazine, uh, because he was he was our first, you know, uh, high school columnist. You know, he was. We had a relationship with Steph, and we knew how great Steph was going to be. Yes, sir. We all love Marcus Camby. Marcus Camby was our guy. Man, you know, fans of Ray Allen. I'm from Chicago, so I was, you know, Antoine Walker Come coming on. from Mark Carmel. What he's able to do in Kentucky, and what we saw him doing in the summer. Antoine was. As a matter of fact, we all thought. Dennis Page and I both thought that Antoine Walker was probably the best player in that in that class. Mm. He was he was incredible, man. Antoine Walker was inside, ridiculous. outside, handles, everything, man. Finish. Soft jump shot, score. And I watched him in the summer in Chicago, killing the pros. Fifty, fifty. Yeah. You know, I one time, man, he he was so he was killing so much, in you know, hooping that he he stopped in the middle of court and said he was the greatest player in the history of Chicago. And because he wow. was killing all of them like that. And Timmy Hardaway rolled up and he said, Dude, have you ever heard of a dude named Isaiah Thomas? Stop Come it. On. <laughs> right. yeah. But Antoine was like, he man, he was special. So the one player that I could say I did not see coming in that class was Kobe Bryant. And there was some of us that knew Kobe was gonna be great because we did, I don't think anybody knew he was gonna be that great. And if anybody told you that Steve Nash is going to be Steve Nash out of that class, they're lying to you. Yeah. I Santa Clara, yeah. very little, yeah. you know, exposure yeah. and two-time yeah. MVP. Yeah, nobody saw Steve Nash. <laughs> nobody saw that. And nobody saw Ben Wallace. No Ooh. one saw Ben Wallace coming in that Undrafted, class. So that Virginia class, Union. Yeah, that class was ridiculously special. But I think they have this theory, and I know you heard it, that every hero needs a theme song. Yes, sir. I think in this particular case, like every class has to have their, you know, hero moment. 
And in this draft class, the hero moment was the Slam Magazine cover. And I'm not saying that because I was a part of that. I'm saying that that nobody captured that class at that time that way. Nobody had the wherewithal to let's get this class together and shoot them that way and basically immortalize them. And Tony Gervino basically did. And you could talk to Tony. I don't know what made him have that feeling mm -hmm. that this class was that class, but the minute he did that and years went on, that image, that cover became more and more important. It almost made Tony look like a prophet. Man. Like, how did you know that? Because everybody in that class. Ray Allen. <laughs> Ray Allen, Steph, Sharif Abdul-Rahim. You know, like you go down the line, Carrie yeah. Fiddles, yeah. Marcus Camp, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. They can put people that weren't even in that picture. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Pages Yakovich. Yeah. You know, you're like, whoa, all these cats out of one class. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, that class is going to be the class that has the most Hall of Famers. From top of you my know. head? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I I think you look at the everybody talks about Jordan, Barkley, Stockton, Elijah Wan, mm -hmm. but I can argue that you know Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, Steve Nash. Mm, if you look globally, you know, and what his impact of the game is, Steph may be included in that. Yes, yes. And this is where I think the '96 class starts to tip the scales a little bit. The '90. The 85, 83 class does not have a Ray Allen. No. They don't have anybody that strong. They don't have uh, a Ben Wallace. You know, defensive player of the year, you know. Years. Rings, <laughs> right, get right, 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 right. You know, the, the, the centerpiece of a championship team. Yeah, yeah. And these are the ancillary players. You know what I'm saying? The, the depth of this class. Yeah, man. Doesn't start to really come out. You know, they don't have like, I don't think they have like the Antoine Walkers. You know, I think he made eight all-star teams. You know, won a championship with Miami. You know, we could you know we could go down the line of the impact that some of these players had. I don't even know if the 83 class because was there a foreign player in there that, that had the ability that Pager had? Had the career that Pager had? I don't think so. No. No. Right. No. I don't think so. I don't think there's a class. You know, even, let's go to high school kid like Jermaine O'Neal was in that class. Come on, man. Come on, dude. Yeah. 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 So I, I, you know, you look at that class and it's like, wow, that class was that class was special. Yes, sir. That class was special. And then once again, <laughs> to give Tony Javino credit for even like recognizing that moment, because once again, sort of like the Allen Iverson thing, we we had not done a gatefold before. We had never done. A magazine where you had that many players where you pulled out that was our first time doing it mm. and it's interesting that a lot of the first times that we did something what they wound up becoming you, it's it's you know we did Allen Iverson and before he became Allen Iverson and it's not like we were predicting that he was going to be Allen Iverson but right. look at what wound up becoming what he wound up becoming and we were kind of the first ones to really recognize or at least give some kind of, you know, treatment to that. Look at the, look at this draft class. 
you know, there have been many draft classes, you know, but for this particular class to be shot and Slam Magazine, hey, we giving you all the first time, that's something special about that class that made Tony and Dennis and, and Russ, like, look, we need to, like, really separate this class from anything we've ever done before. Yeah. Not knowing, but not knowing, once again, that Kobe was going to be Kobe, that Allen was going to be Allen, that Steve was going to be Steve. You know, not knowing any of this. Yeah. You know, we did the same thing with Ray for Austin. Yeah. We put Skeeter Malou on the cover, you know, before the mixtape was even came out. <laughs> the put on the cover of Slam Magazine right. at Fresno State yeah. before AM1 put up the, put out the mixtape. Yeah. And look what he became. You know, so... Yeah, it's it's long story. That that class was unique. That class special, and 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 I'm happy that we at Slam Magazine, you know, were lucky enough to you know give them that, give them the theme song in print. I put it that way. Yes, sir. And you I like we, 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 we gave those heroes their theme song in print. Yes, sir. You guys did, and I can watch that documentary right now. And what was interesting when they said Kobe, his hand, I think he had injured his yeah. hand, and he had to. You go to the other side to take his picture, so they want to show yeah, his hand. Yeah, was yeah, we, we, we made him tuck his hand behind his back. His hand was in a cast. We didn't think about that when we were shooting the cover, you know. So we gave him a ball, and like we were, we were thinking until we were out there, it's like, oh snap, Kobe got a broke hand. Yo, dude, you got to tuck your hand behind. <laughs> and Kobe, Kobe, Kobe was down for whatever. Yeah, Kobe was down for whatever. I never forget that, that. and that's that was my introduction to Kobe because they had me run around with a water bottle spraying their faces to look like they were sweating. <laughs> So, you know, and they were such fans of Slam Magazine because they were kids at the time, right? Yeah. And Slam was like speaking that language to them. We 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 were tapping into their their embrace of basketball, not the older cats, not this that, and the other. We were tapping into them. They felt that we represented them. So it was funny as they were coming out, they were looking at us like we were the dudes. Like they, oh my God, you know you're Tony from Slam, or you're Russ from Slam. You know it's like, oh, they were like, so I'm running up to like <laughs> Steph knew us because Steph had worked right. with us in high school. Steph was right. cool, so Steph was like, what up? You know, I think Steph felt special because he had a relationship with us that a lot of them didn't do, right? Didn't have at the time, right? But I'm, you know, I'm spraying Steph in the face, like, yeah, give me more. Kobe's like, yo, yeah, water me down, water me down. I'm like, you know, but once again, I'm a grown man and he's a kid, so there was a respect level there. But I'm like. They're just wide open to anything we yeah. want to do. And, you know, we're trying to make them look sweaty. We tell them, look hard. Don't, you know, we're trying to get this, you know. Y'all yeah. know the slam face. Get the slam face on. <laughs> so they're all mean mugging and ice grilling. You know. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was maybe the third or fourth shot, you know, uh, Nat Butler or Don. He was either Nat or Don that um, recognized that Kobe's hand was in a cast and it was showing in the picture. So it's like, Kobe, you got to hide your hand, man. Yeah. I think that somebody had a towel on it. I forgot how it went on. But yeah, there were such little things. And we only took, I think we only took like 12 frames. We only had like six minutes, man. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, dude. We only had that whole, because you talk about a story. We were not supposed to be there. Slam, we went there on like a covert operation. The NBA wow. did not, the, the NBA had no idea we were there. Like we were not supposed to be there because this was during, we, we took this, in the back of a gym, in an alley behind a gym where they and were Steph all shooting the there. Steph had the towel on. Steph Marbury had the towel on. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, but we were shooting them while they were taking their like trading cards for Flair and Upper Deck. Come on. They were all shooting their Flair and Flair and Upper Deck things during the rookie orientation in Orlando. And we were the outside magazine and no other media was supposed to be there. We checked into the hotel under assumed name, like we were doing some covert stuff. Like we were using aliases and we could not be seen. They we they had us tucked away. The NBA had no the only person not the Carmen Romanelli, who was the head of NBA photographer, photography at the time, knew we were there. And Nat Butler, who shot it, knew we were there. Because he shot it for us. But the NBA officers, Adam Silver, David Stern, none of those cats. Nobody knew we were there. No one. But we said, and they told us, look, you tell us the guys you want, we'll send them through the back door. You know, you quick. all got to make this quick. <laughs> we were literally Tony Don, Don Morris and I, who was the creative director. We're sitting at the bar the night before with paper, you know, bar napkins. Mm-hmm. We're opening up bar napkins and sketching out how we think this gatefold for, should look because we only have a certain amount of time to get this. So there was no like, all right, y'all move here. There was no, we had to have it all set up immediately. Like bam, 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 bam. And Alan Iverson threw it off because he's supposed to be where Steve, well, Steve's on the other side. He's supposed to be, he and Steph was supposed to be together. Gotcha. And when Alan did show up, he threw off the entire sketch so we had to move some things around so that took yeah. away some time too but Carmen Romanelli was like all right let's get it moving he's like y'all let's get it moving and we literally had six minutes and I think Nat got off 12 frames and you know how it is taking a picture with like 15 people you know got to people all everybody's eyes got to be looking you know it's like taking a class picture with you know they, <laughs> you know Dude, it was it was bananas. But we, we were able to get, I think, two frames work where everybody was looking, everybody's you know, Kobe's hand was hidden, you could see sweat, everybody was kind of locked in. And Jermaine O'Neal gave us this on his own. Yeah, he, he gave sure us the Michael Jordan on his own. We didn't we didn't instruct that. Jermaine gave it, and that gave us some extra texture on the back end of it. You know, and shot it against that brick wall. Yeah, John was, Wallace. Um, yeah, it was it was Wallace. one of those things. And the minute they got through, it was like, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go. That's that's all the time we got. Yeah. And it was like, did we get it? And that was like, I hope so. And so Rocky Walker. <laughs> I hope we yep. got it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We I got something it out of there. So it yes, was good. Yes, but sir. here's the back end of the story to make it so special that I teach I think you'd appreciate. I said when I said we were at the bar kind of sketching out how we wanted the cover to be for the next day. It was at that same night while we're sitting at that bar that uh, Don Morris, Tony Gervino, and I came up with the concept to start Double XL. Mm. That same night at that same bar. So while we were setting up that 96 cover, we came up with the idea for Double XL. And the minute we got back to New York, Don and Tony pitched it to the president of um, uh, 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 Harris Publications. Don, the only th- we had the concept down. We got the concept down. The one thing we didn't have was a name. We came up with everything, and it took Don, I think, about a week once he got back to New York to come up with the name Double XL. He graphically wrote it out. Once he got the name together, they walked into the office, and Stanley Harris was like, "Yep." He basically said, "As much money as y'all made with Slam Magazine for me," he said, "Whatever you all want to do, I'll I'll bankroll." Wow. Yeah. So 
they were like, let's go. And XXL basically started this the same night that we conceptualized that, I mean, I laid out that cover for the 96 cover was the same night that really was the inception of where XXL was born. Wow. Same bar, same night, same time, exact same time. You know what? Uh, are you willing to come back for my part yeah, of, of our Roll to 500? Because uh, yeah. I got more questions, but that I got two more questions, though. Okay, let's go. Within this particular show. So, I, I try not to be long with it. I know I get no, long no, no, with no, it. No, 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 no. Like you said earlier, though, part one and part two. That's right. a testament to you, though. I'm being honest. I was going to bring up um, just a little bit. I was going to bring mm-hmm. up about AI and far as you, how um, far as like his shoe and how you were saying some things a few months back. I was going to bring up some other little things, but I'm just letting you know that I won't be able to hit on those because it's still two questions I want to hit on. Okay. Where did the name Scoop come from? How did you get that name? I was given the name Scoop at birth. Well, really before birth. Hmm. Uh, my birthday is uh, November 23rd. I was born in 1963. And that happens to be the day after JFK was assassinated. And as I said earlier, my father was a newspaper reporter. The first black newspaper reporter in the country. And with him being a newspaper reporter, my uncle, my mother's brother, made a joke um, the day I was born, while I was being born at the time. Um, because like I said, it was the day after the, uh, Kennedy had been assassinated. My uncle said to my father, he said, boy, the news of you having a son is going to scoop Kennedy. Gotcha. As in, the, right. And he said, and they really like, that was, that's where it came from. And they literally gave it to me at birth. Like Robert, Robert Scoop Arthur Jackson III. So I got my grand, I got Scoop from my uncle. I got Arthur, which is my grandfather's name. I got Robert, which is my father's name. And you know, there's a third to keep the lineage going on. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had that name since birth um, and was called, I forgot when it dropped, but all my kid age, I was always called Scoopy. It was they put a Y on it because you know they always put Y's on kids' names because they think it's cute. No, you know how that goes. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, all my life as a, as a kid, probably about 10, 11, maybe twelve. I think maybe the it, it got the scoop. I forgot when it, when that happened, but it's funny because people that know me, like know me, know me, like my wife and I grew up together, so she's known me since I was six years old wow she, yeah we grew up in the same neighborhood and her sister and i went to first grade together so i've known my wife we've known each other basically our whole lives still to this day she calls me scoopy like still like and like if people like back in the day would call the house you know and they'd ask for scoopy she's like oh i know he know him he's known him for a long time <laughs> you know right and you know yeah even family members aunties and uncles and all that they, they still call me you know scoopy to this day and people that are around us a long time, they pick up on that. Yes. So now I got, I got new people, you know, that have stuck around. That now call me Scoopy, you know, like like Daytuan Thomas, who was with me at Double XL. That's yeah. now the editor in chief of Vibe Magazine, who was like, you know, you know my, you know, I tried to mentor Daytuan. You know, Daytuan called me Scoopy. You know, like to this, you know, to this day. 
you know, he's like, oh yeah, I'm, 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 you Scoopy from now on. I'm like, whatever, yeah, man. <laughs> but real talk, it's been with me since birth. It's literally been with me since birth. So, and the reason why I asked that because one, it's a good question, I believe, and two, you might, in our position, scoop like he get all the scoop as far as the information right. or the details. So I just wanted to make sure that didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah, no, it's connecting. No, the, the name Scoop is connected to my father, and you know his 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 reporting, you know, and what he did, you know. So, gotcha. and I think through just through even my real name, you know, Robert, and the third being connected to him, I think more than anything, you know, Scoop is while Robert, you know, Robert ja Robert Jackson the third is connected to my father because you know he's junior and I'm third. I think Scoop is the connection to him as his career. Mm. You know, I'm, the, the original is connected to him as a man. The back end, you know, the scoop is connected to him in his career. And, you know, so I, uh, you know, I, I look at that right. Exactly. I look at it that way. You know, my father had a, you know, trailblazing legendary career, you know, uh, nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, you know. Come on. So, yeah, he's, he was he was a hell of a reporter. One of the you know, first blacks in the country paved the way for, you know, a lot of brothers and sisters to gain entry into the field of journalism and, and, and reporting so um yeah so you know scoop scoop does have a, a lineage to it you know um so I, I try to do what i can to you know honor that yes sir and not, and, and, and not misrepresent it i put it that yes, way sir. absolutely and that's what this next question is about the most latest book or the current book like we said during the introduction the game is not a game Mm -hmm. Power, protest, and politics of American sports. Give us a brief description. Yeah, that. well, you know, it, 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 it connected to what we just said about um, uh, my name in connection to my father. It's interesting. After my father read the book, he he's like, "All right, I finally got to admit, you're a better writer than me." Mm. <laughs> and I, I still disagree with that, but. You know, it, it 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 it. I think he. I think it took him a lot to finally handle with those reins. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but it's it's a book that I guess I say is like 15 years in the making because I've been at ESPN for a little over 16 years. Um, and it. I don't think if I had been at ESPN, I would have had the ability to write this book because before I left slam and left you know the nba magazines this high stuff and hoop and uh i know it's a lot i love it <laughs> yeah i kind of put a haul on what i was doing with nike at the time in order to work with espn uh years ago i had not really written about sports as a whole i was specifically chronicling and journaling basketball that was the lane i was in mm. ESPN coming over to ESPN gave me the um, landscape to really engage in writing about all sports, baseball, tennis, football, college football, wrestling, you know, boxing, soccer. You know, I was able to really cover and write about all the sports. And I never had the opportunity to do that. And I did that. So I'm still doing that for them now. But as a columnist, I did that for them for 11 years. And once I shifted from being a columnist with .com to, 
you know, being senior writer for SportsCenter and writing the short form stories where you mentioned earlier doing the voiceover work and all yes, this sir. and the other. The, the stories got shorter and shorter. The context went from, you know, say 1500 words to 300 words and sometimes less. That gave me space to look at what I wasn't able to do as a senior writer for writing small vignettes and short features for ESPN and looking at what I would be doing had I been continuing writing columns dot-com and when I I looked at these stories that were still coming up in sports that I I was no longer able to cover cover in that manner because of the shift of dynamics and the difference in writing scripts as opposed to writing columns I said well these stories still should be covered in a certain way and why can't I just act like I was writing columns on these things but just turn these columns into chapters. Mm -hmm. So I had the space to do it because I was so used to my whole career writing long form stories. I'm used to writing three, four, five thousand word stories at a time, wow. you know, and over the course of leaving Slam and leaving all the other magazines to coming to ESPN, it went from like doing, you know, three or four, three thousand, thirty five hundred word stories, uh, an issue for Slam and you know, the NBA magazines to doing 1500 word stories, a couple of 1500, 800 word stories, a couple of times a week for, you know, dot com to now doing 300 word stories several times a week for sports center. You see the word count keeps getting smaller and smaller and the form of writing starts getting smaller and smaller, but the work still has to be impactful. Mm -hmm. But because it's so used to writing long form, I just said, well, I, I'm writing shorter stories. The volume is still there, you know, but I mean, the amount is still there. The volume is just it's not there. I can just turn whatever's going on in sports and just go back to writing. Instead of writing 3,000, uh, 3,500 word, you know, stories, what I was doing for Slam, I could literally turn these into chapters. And I just started picking stories and started like doing the research and doing what I would do for ESPN.com and turning columns into chapters. And over the course of two years, maybe? Yeah, of course, of two, yeah, two to three years, I took what I thought were very topical stories in sports and flushed out what probably would be columns and just turned them into chapters. I just went you know, into that dive that I learned how to do when I was doing this master's thesis. In the process of researching, like how you go about researching and getting this information and building stories around that and finding angles that nobody else is is looking at and telling these stories and finding uh, different sides of what people consider truth or what I feel is the truth mm -hmm. in stories and, and basically turn them into chapters and, and still trying to be creative at the same time. So that's how the the concept of the book came about. But. From the beginning, had I not been at ESPN for all those years as a columnist covering these stories, or still at ESPN today, like doing stories across the sports grid, I probably wouldn't be able to write this book because I would not have had the pedigree of covering all sports. And I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't even be respected as somebody that the audience would take seriously as writing about all sports because 
either how you gonna write about all sports and you've done a whole career only writing about one sport? Mm -hmm. Why are we gonna take you seriously? What makes us think you have the knowledge to do this? So I think I needed that time, you know, those 11 years in order for me to even enter into this space to, you know, have the cojones. There you go. Huh. <laughs> right, right, right. You can write a book about all sports. So, yeah, but I just kind of took what I wasn't able to, I just took what I was, I had stopped doing at dot com and just expanded on that. It, it stories I thought that were still existing and continue to exist inside of sports. Now, where can we find a book for those uh, listeners that don't know? The first place, I mean, the easiest place to do is go to the publishing company, uh, which is Haymarket Books. And that's, you know, uh, haymarketbooks.org. Um, you know, that's the easiest place to go. But it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Go online, you know, if, if any bookstore is open, hopefully it's still there. But online would be the easiest thing. Amazon still carries it. Barnes & Noble still carry it. All the other literary uh, uh, links online that move books uh, carry the book. But it's Haymarket Books that is the publisher, and they, they always have it. Hardcover and softcover. Last thing. It's not a question. It's, again, just a respect and salute to you and you just kind of said it how you went from senior writer at ESPN.com to senior writer at SportsCenter and mm -hmm. uh, by helping develop the campaign especially with equality like you said of our community mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if this is the right year though but based on my research 2017 you were uh, you won the New York International Television and Film Gold uh, medal award for your sports coverage. Yeah, we did. We did that. That was specific to a piece we did on the Chicago Cubs. Um, director um, John uh, Suma and I uh, worked together on a project uh, about the impact that the Cubs winning the World Series was going to have on the city of Chicago. Oh, huge! Yeah, yeah. The we ghost did it of the Cubs. <laughs> Right, and what's funny is that you know I, I'm a Southside Chicago dude, so I'm a Sox fan. Right? I see, I see the hat. I see the hat. Right, right now, I, I, I rep Southside, but there was so many. I caught a lot of heat in the city because in the telling of that story, we did not mention the White the Sox White winning Sox. the World Series. And it's funny how art works because as much as I love the White Sox. As much as I bleed, you know, black and white with the White Sox, their winning the World Series was not a big deal outside of, you know, outside of us, really. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the national or international baseball needle did not move outside of Chicago with the White Sox winning the World Series. Yeah. So in the context of doing this piece, they did win an award, a national award, you know, won a film award in New York, a gold gold award, which is like the highest honor you can get. We mentioned that the Cubs winning the World Series was going to have a greater impact than the Bulls winning six rings, mm. Blackhawks in their mini, you know, dynasty run where they mm. won three, and the Chicago Bears winning the one football championship that is still one of the biggest. Super Bowls, you know, they're considered one of the greatest Super Bowl teams in the history, and their yes, Super sir. Bowl is considered one of the greatest, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about two modern-day dynasties in the Bulls and the Hawks, 
and probably the greatest Super Bowl championship outside of probably the, you know, Joe Namath's Jets. <laughs> At the beginning of oh, Super Bowl. One of the greatest Super Bowl wins ever. The White Sox World Series did not even go it. It's not even comparable to those three. So us omitting the White Sox and the Cubs is, is not a slight to the Sox. It's putting into context how great these other, you know, three were. And we're saying in this piece, the Cubs win the World Series is going to be bigger than all of those. Man, but the White Sox fans thought we straight shitted on them. And mm. I'm like, come on. And they gave me heat, like, still giving me heat. Wow. Still giving me heat. And I'm still like, got a job to do, though, school. I mean, but, I know but, that. But it's, it's, it, it, as, as a journalist, it's not about, in this particular case, not about the job. It's about putting the story into context. I, as a Sox fan, am never slighting the impact of that World Series. We won that. I wrote about it for ESPN. Like, I covered it. That was it. Like, I literally, like, that's, this is it. Greatest day in our lives. Yes. But it didn't resonate that way. And when you're trying to make a point of the greatness of something, your, you know, your omission is not a slight at all but people felt that way it and and i don't even want to get into technicality of it we even had it set up in a situation where we only had a certain amount of television so if you know it's it's, it's a long story but anyway that yeah it, it didn't fit the context of what we were saying and as a journalist as much as i like to i can't include if it doesn't make sense or just for the sake of inclusion. You know, what I should have done is worn this White Sox hat during that storytelling. That's what I should have done. Gotcha. I should have worn I should have worn it during the taping of that. You know you're giving That's me tips, right? So huh? Murph, I said you're giving me tips. So as I grow, even though you might be more loyal or supportive of your history showing this particular, you know, sport or team, if you have to record or write about, you know, other than be prepared. It's like, dude. Yeah, be prepared and always think sometimes, try to be as comprehensive as possible. Yes, sir. And that, you know, I, it, I thought about it, but I'm like, it doesn't make sense. You know, I want to include the White Sox in this conversation because I don't want to minimize their World Series. But their World Series win does not did not resonate historically, even in the city, the way the three Stanley Cups, the Blackhawks recently won, yeah. doesn't resonate like that one. The Bears won that people are still talking about so as the they- holy grail in the city, or the six rings that the Bulls, Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson, Scotty Pippen won. Their World Series is not on that level. So when we're telling the story about the impact the Cubs world, the impact the Cubs win the World Series was gonna have after 108 years, and them being one of the most beloved teams in all of America. Yes, sir. You know, probably behind only two other baseball teams ever, and probably only the, behind with that Red two Sox and Yankees. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly, exactly. I think it's the, it's the Yankees, the Dodgers, and then the, you know, and then the Cubs. And, and they're probably ahead of the Red Sox. Yeah, yeah. You know, the White Sox don't resonate like that. We know that. That's what that's that's part of the thing that we love each other. Because we know we're not love. We don't have that <laughs> right. national love. Right. And we hold on to that. Right. 
You know, but I think, you know, coming from me being the South Side dude, I caught a lot of heat from that. But I appreciate you missing it because we, we take a lot of pride in that. Now, you know, in, in that piece, uh, we thought it was very strong. Uh, we wanted it to be strong and we we're glad that they uh, that they recognized it. So. Scoop, you know, we've been chopping it up for a while now, believe it or not. So mm-hmm. I was prepared, as you can tell. But no, I, I, man, mm-hmm. this was great. Um, like I said, I got I got some stuff. For next time, we're going to talk about some of the articles. Like, again, with Part Tim two. Duncan. What you say? The Iceman 2, 2.0, Iceman 2000, something like that. I'm a Spurs yeah. fan. Like, so we're going to hit on that. Sneaker world. All that good okay. stuff. That's for next time, though. And you know what? And to be honest with you, if we're really having a real conversation, I, I may have jumped the gun on that and, and Tim Duncan being the Iceman Part 2 because that's more about his demeanor. And how chill he was and the team he was with. Yes, sir. You know, that's knowing that he was gonna have that same type of impact on that franchise that George Gervin had. And his personality was a whole nother set of cool. That's the devil was. But the real Iceman part two, the real George Gervin part on. two, it's Kevin Durant. Ooh. Save that. Save it. Save it. Yeah. The world like, yeah. hey, y'all. Me and Scoop yeah. got things to do, y'all. Like he said, man, we it's a holiday. We, we we got things to do and enjoy our time with our families. But, man, if you can let, again, it's an honor. You talk about honor to be here with me. Honor to have yes, you, you know, being a part of this platform, part of the road to 500 that I yeah. have going on, man. And, and, and it's just great to be able to. Now, you, you, you the reason this us brothers still, you know, we, we do this, man, so that you can do your thing, you know? Yes, sir. There's a lot, there's a lot of, you're, you're the reason that makes everything that a lot of us do worth it. Thank you. I agree. You know, so that, that's, that. that's why it's an honor on my end because it could, you know, it, it, it could easily fall and slip through the cracks and we know that even though the road that you're traveling may not be as crazy and dysfunctional as the ones you know that we had to go through which was less crazy and less dysfunctional as the one before mm-hmm. the fact that you all are still surviving and emerging in this is why we do this because if, if we don't see this thing grow then we always look as a why we, why did we end up doing this? If, if, we, if we get, yeah, why did why did we do this? And or not only why did we do this, what did we do wrong to make it not grow? And go. and it's brothers like yourself that are continuing to do this that at least makes us believe that you know we did something right. So that's why we that's why it's an honor. That's why we appreciate you. Yes, sir. And I'm going to run with it and keep on trucking, man. You know what I mean? So, appreciate you, yeah. brother. Yeah, Road to 500, man. Independent, 500. freelancer. 500 total episodes as a host with great people such as yourself that uh, has been been featured and, 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 and recognized on the brand. So, I don't take that lightly, man. And Like I said, you'll be back, though. We, again, like you said, part two. Part two. Part two. We, we got to do that. We got to do that. <laughs> For sure. Let the world know also how they can find you too, man, on uh, social media. Oh, well, you know, that's, I mean, I'll let you know, but I'm one of those brothers that don't like being found. I try to, you know, bad okay. boys move in silence, man. Okay. But, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I am, I am, I look, I am, I am OG3Scoop on Twitter, uh, Scoop Jackson Writer on Facebook, 
and uh instagram ig is strong island media shot that's my company so there it is also entrepreneurship I, I said in the introduction but like i knew i said man this show gonna go for a while but we'll talk about all that good stuff next time Whoa. yeah you know yeah no we gotta talk about that entrepreneurship <laughs> is, is very important you know yes sir uh, we, we can end it on this and begin from this point what's my policy Demer? do for yourself or die slave is it <laughs> say it one more time do for yourself or die a slave so world on that note find me on twitter instagram at hd murph you can also um find the why not sports on instagram why not sports um underscore check out the website www.dmurphspeaks.com also enjoy enjoy just let's enjoy life be safe and uh be ready for part two y'all heard scoop he, he coming back soon we're gonna really hit on some stuff and wherever you listen to this podcast Make sure you subscribe. Tell a friend to tell a friend because we're going to keep it moving. But until keep next going. time, keep grinding. Keep the faith. My man, I appreciate you. Keep on moving.